Welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. My guest on the podcast today is Richard Powell, doctor of spiritual science and the author of Essence into Form, The Magic and Power of the Triangle of Manifestation. In our talk today, he shares personal stories and answers many pivotal questions from his book that were shaped around his nearly 40 years experience with his spiritual teacher, Wayfarer, John Roger, whom to many consider him the holder of the keys, known as the mystical traveler consciousness. From hitting rock bottom during the real estate crash decades ago, which found Richard in a place of appearing to lose everything and sleeping on his friend's blow-up mattress in his garage, to his very first encounter with his spiritual teacher, which set him on a radical trajectory of expansion. Richard brings to light the power of our habitual patterns and the opportunities that life offers when we can really begin to see through the lens of our elevated perspective. He shares incredible stories, miracle stories of his journeys all over the globe with John Roger. We explain deeper viewpoints around karma and belief systems. We touch upon an incredible thing we call Solomon's Shamir and how John Roger applied that at the Berlin Wall and the discipline of holding oneself to the good and unconditional forgiveness. I really hope you enjoy this talk and as always, that it serves you well. Well, Richard Powell, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's a joy, joy, joy to have you. Great to be here. Great to be here. Well, here we go. Let's dive into the spiritual pot and begin, if we can, way back in July of 1983, where you begin in your book, Essence into Form. And you talk about this blessed premonition you had or dream of your future spiritual wayfarer, John Roger. And a year later, that dream became real. My question is, what was your first meeting in physical world reality with John Roger? What happened? Um, the first, so I met, I met the, his product, his, his energetic, um, by going into, um, a workshop called insight seminars. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that he had done it. I didn't connect it with what I was doing that year was I basically was looking at ads in the back of yoga magazines for good gurus to find. <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like, this guy's going to show up. I better keep my eyes open. So um, when I went to this workshop, which was touted as something that would open my heart chakra, which I went, I don't know what a heart chakra is, but it sounds cool. <laughs> and so I went and 
um, I had my socks blown off mm. because up until that point, um, I basically read about spirituality and I guess I was, um, was more intellectual than experiential. So I thought I knew everything, but when I had the experience of this, it was like, oh my God. So that was in July of 1984. I did not meet Jay until January of 1985, so, you know, six, I guess six months later. So um, I was doing another deep retreat that I thought was going to be like insight, but it was like 10 times more powerful. And it's called the peace awareness trainings. I didn't know what in the world I was going to get into. So I went into these peace awareness trainings for three weeks. And while I was doing a process with somebody, we, it was done in near San Diego and it was a beautiful property. And you could look out the windows at, the gorgeous scenery out there. So I was doing a process with someone who was sitting across from me. And this person starts talking about, I see John Roger, I see John Roger getting out of the car. I see him coming towards us. I was like, this guy's just kind of like in his creative imagination. <laughs> this man, John Roger, who created this peace awareness training was gonna come in. And because I didn't expect him to ever show up to any trainings. I didn't know anything about this guy. And all of a sudden, everybody stops because he walked in the door. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, who's that? And I didn't realize that he was the man in the dream. I'd heard about him until I was watching him. So... He was doing a question and answer session with a group. Mm -hmm. He walked in and he looked at me. There was about 30, 40 people in there. He looked at me and he pointed at me. He said, Texas. It's like, yeah. <laughs> at my cousin, he said, Texas. He looked at another person and said, Michigan. And he was, and I'd never met him. And it was like, did he study the roster? He doesn't have any picture. I was trying to logically figure out what, where all this came, came in. So um, I was watching him and do question and answers with people. And inside of me, I was like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> what is he doing? And I looked up and there was, they were filming him. Mm -hmm. So there's a television set and he was doing this Q and A and there was, some flowers next to him and I was watching him on the TV and I could watch him live. And as I looked at, up at the TV, he looked right in the camera, like he was looking at me and he leaned over to where his face was right next to the flowers. And he looked right at me and I was like, that's the guy. Mm -hmm. So it, um, I get a little emotional when I, yeah. talk about this so uh, anyway yeah yeah, yeah. So that was the first time yeah and then he told the dirtiest joke i'd ever heard so i went that's my spiritual teacher right there yes <laughs> because like he says you know god rests or sits in that humor 
He lives. Oh, I laugh so much. That's so great. So great. Well, um, I have a few questions about those early days and it it brings me to a teaching and I'm going to kind of just butcher it a little bit. Uh, But it comes from one of the discourses that JR wrote. And he says to the effect that if we're all responsible creators and you know, like I know as being students of the discourses and JR's teachings, he talks a lot about being a responsible creator. And so if we are all responsible creators, he says, in effect, we either invite, provoke, or participate in our own creations, mm-hmm. something to that effect. Create, promote, or allow. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So we either cre- create, promote, or allow our creations. So mm-hmm. when we think about and talk about your early days, which you share in your book, where you happen to end up losing, as you say, you lose it all, being the successful businessman, a family man, a husband, and you end up on a blow-up mattress living in the garage of your friend's house. Mm -hmm. Now, recognizing from a spiritual perspective, of course, and looking back in hindsight, we can see the perfection of all our challenging experiences. We can see that divine order to it. But my question is, Being a responsible creator, do you or can you look back now in hindsight and see clearly, oh, yeah, like that's what I did to create that reality? Absolutely. Um, First off, in the moment when I was in that garage, devastated because I basically, the worst case scenario that I had in my mind had come forward. I'd let down my family hugely. Uh So knowing the precept that I create, promote, or allow everything in my life, I judged myself deeply saying, I'm an incredible failure. How did I do this? Mm. How did I do this? Um, And instead of expanding immediately, I contracted uh, dynamically. Um, I was ashamed, I was embarrassed, and I did not, and I wanted to hide. Mm. So now from the perspective that I'm at now, um, there's a lot of stories around, first off, I thought I'd, I'd, um, my kids were uh, in high school and one of my, one of my, I have three children. One of my daughters was getting ready to go to college. She was accepted into an Ivy League college. And at that point in time, I thought I could handle that. But as soon as the crash happened, I couldn't. So I, my I couldn't pay for my daughter's college, nor my my son's private school. Uh, nor my daughter, my youngest daughter's private school. So, oh my God, what, you know, I just could not do that. And when Um, you're talking about the crash, are you talking about the stock market crash? Or are you talking? It happened in 2000, it happened in 2008, 2009. So basically it was, uh, I had a piece of property that was um, 
I had sold the business and I had a large piece of property that I thought I would be able to sell easily and everything would be fine because of the way the real estate market was in 2008 and 2009. That did not happen. Mm, got it. Okay. So um, anyway, um, so basically not to go too deeply into each one of my children's lives and my ex-wife's life. If you look at their lives today, they're incredibly successful. Mm. All of them are incredibly successful. And um, it's because they had to, they did not have everything given to them on a silver platter. They literally had to work for everything. And my daughter ended up going to the Ivy League school because she went down a year later and told them the story that she had applied and was accepted, but she couldn't go. And because of her hard work and other people supporting her, she got a full scholarship for four wow. years. That's incredible. My, my son, who um, was in a, in a very high level private school in, in Santa Monica, ended up going to a public school in Los Angeles. How devastating. So, um, <laughs> and there he met a physics teacher that lit him on fire. Wow. Okay. And so now he is a professor with a doctorate in theoretical physics at UCLA because of that. Incredible. And my young, youngest daughter, um, she wanted to make some, some, uh, spending money and she, became a model and made a lot of money doing that. Hmm. So, and she's making, she's very successful now in Brooklyn. And so these things would not have happened that way. And my, the structure of my, my uh, ego construct was I had failed as a father because I couldn't provide these things for my children so they would be successful. But actually, what happened was the best thing for them to be successful. I know that now. I did not know that then. Mm -hmm. So this is a long vision. So when yeah, so I encourage people if they if they feel like their world is collapsing around them, if they go in and have faith that there's some reason for it that's good, yeah. they just can't see it yet. So that's, that's, that's so, so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. And that specificity that's, I think, so even more potent with each of their individual um, paths. You mentioned how you saw yourself as a failure. And that was one way and a big way that you defined yourself back then. And you talk about how JR helped obliterate these limited belief systems of how you would define yourself. Um, can you go into a little bit about what he would do to annihilate, <laughs> dissolve those really shitty belief systems that we create, particularly yours at the time of being a failure? So let's say that there are levels for me, there were levels of knowing that I had, I had, I'd been with, when that happened in 2008, I'd been with Jer for over 20 years. 
And, um, but there was a level, another, a deeper level of me being able to understand that um, and do that on my own. Mm -hmm. So he basically has a plethora of tools and techniques and information um, that deals with this. And when I was in front of him uh, in his realm, it was really easy to find my true self. The, the challenge, he always called himself a way shower and not a guru. And he basically said, I can show you how to do this, but you have to do it yourself. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, I get that. I didn't have any idea. <laughs> but um, so um, it literally was like there was one time he was sharing with me and I was asking him for assistance about something in the business, something I was worried about. And he looked at me and he said, they're not allowing me to answer this anymore. And I panicked because he was my go-to, he was my seer. Yeah. Basically what I realized now is I had to start doing this myself. I could not have my teacher, my, the one that I had relied on to do this. I had to ride the bicycle myself instead of um, having him as the go-to. So, um, the main thing that he talked about that really hit me, that struck me was um, when he talked about karma, he said, I can take your karma from you today, right now. And you still have your habitual patterns that were formed around that to deal with. And in your habits, in your habitual patterning, you will bring the karma back to you. Mm. So this was the key that I, that I had to, this was the big key for me to figure out on my own. It's like, okay, Jer took the karma away from me over and over and over again. And yet I still had to go through these deeply embedded patterns and issues that I had in my, in my world around worry. Right. And um, so how do I do that? And so I started after after he died in 2014 i started really these pieces started popping up and i started following them um so one of the things i um um read was um the biology of belief bruce and lipton. yeah bruce lipton and what bruce says is which struck me he said 90 to 95% of what we do in the world is done through our unconscious. Yeah. And I went, holy cow. So this is, to me, it's like I overlay Jair's, I can take the karma from you, but your habits are going to keep circling around this. Yeah. And so that's where I went, how in the world am I going to shift my habitual patterning, my unconscious, when 90 to 95% of what I do is governed by that mm -hmm. so this was my challenge it's like and so i it was a combination of finding the right thing to do and this this was at a time in my life where 
I was challenged financially. It was literally like, I have to figure this out. Mm-hmm. I have to, so I could survive. And, um, and it was my charge. And, you know, it's like, so a lot of the book is about the tools and techniques that I use to uh, start to shift my unconscious patterning. Well, let's go into that because I love, Richard, how you describe belief systems. And I'm just going to quote your book here for the listeners to hear. You say, think of your belief systems like rivers running through you. The more water that runs through the river, the deeper the canyon. The more times you hold a mental image in your mind, the more times you self, your self-talk tells you something, the deeper the belief. This process is amplified when it is accompanied by an emotion. The canyon is cut even deeper. In other words, the beliefs you hold with strong emotions become who you are. So, of course, the million-dollar question is, well, how do you change your belief systems? How do you create and build or um, develop a new canyon or a canyon that creates new, clearer, fresher waters or rivers. And I think of the quote from J.R. where he says, and I, you say it in your book, that any great manifestation requires a shift in consciousness. Yeah. So maybe we could go into the sort of crux of your book, which is the triangle of manifestation where we can start creating these um, new tributaries uh, in our, in our, in our consciousness. And I might add one more quote around this that you write about that I just wanted to share. And you say the river of your life will flow down the deepest Canyon. Mm -hmm. I just think that's a beautiful, um, it's beautiful imagery to incorporate here. So do you want to explain uh, what the triangle of manifestation is? <laughs> In, I know there's a lot here and being a doctor. No, no it's, it, it is the crux. And so to let you know how long that had been gestating inside of me, I mm-hmm. first heard about the triangle of manifestation in 1994. When you were in your master's program? Yeah, it was the first year of the master's program. They had just launched it. And, um, and I was um, 93, 94 is when they, they launched it. And so I, uh, that was the time when I, um, my son was born. He was, an, he was born in 93. And so I literally would go to Los Angeles and do the master's program so I could get some sleep because... <laughs> because he, um, he only slept about two hours at a time. And so I was incredibly sleep deprived. So anything that I got from MSS the first year or two was um, through a miracle in itself. So um, I was sitting next to someone who um, was a seer and he had proven himself over and over again in my life. And I was sitting there kind of half listening to whatever the facilitator was talking about this thing called the triangle of something or other. And um, all of a sudden this guy sitting next to me, who's usually very quiet said, Oh my God, this is the key. This is a huge key. All of my guides from the other side are telling me they are so glad that you were talking about the triangle of manifestation on this planet. 
I was like, what in the hell are you talking about? <laughs> so I kind of came awake and took notes. And so here I am, um, you know, 2010, 11, 12, all of a sudden, as I'm starting to come out from my uh, shock, these things start coming in and I start going, the triangle of manifestation. So when I realized that um, what I needed to do was to shift my unconscious, which governed 90% of my life, which defined, it's like, how can I be a spiritual student for 20 years and still have this happen to me? It's because something that was laid in either through, also I can say it here, a past life mm-hmm. or um, my, my parents' belief systems, uh, what I got growing up um, in El Paso. Um, how can I shift it? The triangle came to mind and I started looking at the triangle and I started looking at other, it's like, okay, this has to exist outside of the masters of spiritual science somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so it has a, it has a very deep, rich history. Of, and basically it comes from alchemy. Uh, so it's an alchemy. Um, you can go all the way back to, uh, you know, it just keeps rolling. And so, um, but I wanted to really make it practical. How can you make something that is really metaphysical or practical? So the triangle basically is three-sided, of course. Um, one side is emotional, mental, spirit, and physical. So those are the three sides of the triangle. And then you circle that um, with what I call spirit or the source. So I make it like three-dimensional. Just imagine that you are standing there and the circle of spirit is coming down from the source, pouring forth blessings continuously, always the blessings already are. They already are present and they're pouring forth. But the way that you are programmed you're not able to receive this. So emotionally, if your unconscious is going, I'm not worthy, mm-hmm. a failure, mm-hmm. um, I need to constrict whatever that script is going on mentally inside of yourself. Even visually, if you have visions of you failing and you see that over and over again, that's a mental image that's going to start vibrating on the emotional side of the triangle where doubt and fear and constriction are going to be rolling. So that those two are vibrating against you receiving the the blessings that are pouring forth from spirit and the physical, I mean, there are all kinds of things you can do physically. You can freeze, not do anything out of fear, um, do things that that might look like protection to you, but actually it's a constrictive thing. So you're really not open to that. Mm-hmm. You're not open to that. And so I started thinking, okay, this is the triangle. How can I start shifting the mental? It's like, okay, simple, 
affirmations. Okay, I can start doing that. Um, the emotional will play off that, but I want to go deeper. And so I started thinking about um, a tool that I ran into in 1984 when I first went into my insight training. They used a process called the inner sanctuary. Is that the Teresa Avila technique? <laughs> uh, Teresa Avila is, is yes, she, um, that's, I started going, okay, I, let's find out because I started getting the inner temple came in, up inside of me and I started following where has this been before? How old is this process? Mm-hmm. So even though I had it in 1984 as a closed eye process and a very powerful um, workshop, I found that Teresa Babila was the earliest one that I could find that did this process. Mm-hmm. And it's her inner castle mm-hmm. process. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned, there's a great affirmation I just want to share for our listeners mm-hmm. around um, abundance. And, uh, and of course, we, we don't need to go into this unless we want to, but I'm sure people get that abundance isn't just about finances and money and material things. It's a much deeper thing than that. And it's a soul attribute, but this is a wonderful affirmation that you, you share in your book. And it goes like this. God is my infinite supply. Large sums of money come to me quickly under grace and in perfect ways for the highest good. I love that affirmation. I use it all the time. Anytime I go into contraction and it's never failed me. Right. I think it's just some dink, right? It's, it's me coming in alignment with my own triangle of manifestation. You sum up the triangle of manifestation. I'll just read from your book here. Mm-hmm. Yep. And say, as I learned from my spiritual teacher, Any true manifestation requires a change in consciousness, like we mentioned earlier. The consciousness you are expressing now through thoughts, emotions, and actions creates the reality you experience now. To bring forward a new experience, the three sides of the triangle must be in balance with one another and in alignment with that which you are bringing forward. When thoughts, emotions, and actions are in balance, then manifestation occurs equal to those that brought it forward. I think that sums it up really beautifully. And I have my triangle of manifestation right over there on my desk and I look at it every day. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd love to shift gears a little bit, Richard. Mm -hmm. You went on many fantastic trips where you had very, uh, potent experiences, I guess I should say, with JR. Some that were collective experiences with, with other people that were on these trips, like the Berlin Wall, which we'll go into, and some that were very much individualized that you talk about in your book, like in Paris and in Glastonbury. I'd love to, if we could just go through some of those, because I think they're worthy of mention. Sure. Um, and just downright great stories. <laughs> And um, so maybe we could start with the Berlin Wall. You were there in 1988 before the wall went down. In August of 88, yes. Yeah. And could you talk about what you did when you were there? I ate really bad food when I was there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Except in Berlin. Berlin had great food. Uh, West Berlin did. East Berlin did not. 
Um, so um, you just want me to talk about anything the specific? Worm. Go to the worm. <laughs> Go to the worm. Go to the worm. <laughs> so um, basically, we were there. I, you know, we we were in. If you place yourself in 1988, the Cold War was in full bloom. It was in full force, and so we were riding around. Um, the USSR, um, basically they shuffled us onto night trains and that's where we slept. And in order for us to get showers, they would stop at great hotels and we would go to rooms and take a shower, but then shuffled back on a night train. Oh, God. And we really didn't know where we were going. So we traveled all over the USSR because this was, our trip was scheduled by, um, you know, by the communist Russia, <laughs> we didn't know where we were going. So we traveled all over the place. Um, but before we did that, um, we, um, we were in Berlin and in West Berlin, and we went to East Berlin on a, on a day trip. I'd never been to East Berlin. And, um, it, it was really energetically, again, you have to place yourself in 1988. Uh, the stark difference between West Berlin and East Berlin was amazing. Mm. East Berlin literally was like going into a dead city. Um, if you can imagine, they had a city over a million people in East Berlin. No one was on the street, hardly any traffic, hardly anybody on the sidewalk. It was eerie. It was really strange. And we went to go eat at a quote unquote restaurant, mm. which we were the only customers there. And we were served whatever the heck, I don't know what we were served. But anyway, um, we got to eat there. And so it was a very bizarre experience. And I was relieved as we were going back to West Berlin. And um, we went... I don't know if the checkpoint was Checkpoint Charlie or another one. I was just, I couldn't wait to get out of East Berlin. And we were on a bus. And as we crossed over, I looked over and Chair was just like passed out in the front seat of the bus. He was just, and this is not unusual when Chair goes on trips. He's in the front of the bus, usually with his eyes closed and his head bobbing. Hmm. So when we got to uh, the hotel in West Berlin, um, we all gathered and Jair um, was there with John who had literally just received um, the keys to the traveler consciousness, not too far before that. And so John was there with Jair uh, at the front of the room and Jair asked John, he said, um, he wanted him basically to tell us the story of what happened while he was, while he was, um, had his eyes closed and he was very specific. He had to kind of like wrestle out of John this information because it's kind of weird, <laughs> strange. Yeah. He said, so John, what, what did I tell you that I planted in the wall? And John said, you planted a worm. And I was like, worm oh really hmm. and what's the worm to do and the worm is uh, to feed off of light 
and it will disintegrate the wall. And, and then Jair prodded him and he said, how long did I tell you that the wall, it would be for the wall to come down? And John said, two, within two years. And inside of me, I mean, I had seen and heard a lot of wild things with Jair and I was still, I'd only been in the movement four years mm-hmm. with him for four years. But even then it was like an overload of metaphysical, oh my God, what in the world is happening now? Um, but that one was the wildest one. And I was really going, I don't know if this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this man is crazy. This, this is a test. Let's <laughs> inside of me. Right. Yeah. And of course, in 15 months after you guys did some prayers, I believe around that. And he put the so-called worm in the wall. Um, The Berlin Wall, of course, came down in history. Um, History speaks for itself. And and I, by the way, I've never heard of Solomon's Shamir. And you mentioned that in your book. And again, I'm just going to read this for our listeners because it's fascinating. I've never heard of it. And you were given this uh, information, I guess, in the process of writing this book, some years later, is that right? As I was, as I was actually writing this chapter. Yeah. Um, so I wrote this book in 2020 and, and this happened to me. I had not heard anything about Solomon Shamir or the worm, uh, since, uh, 1988. Sheesh. I had not heard of the Solomon Shamir. So it was a mystery to me and it had never been revealed until my friend, uh, Carol Neal said, Hey, I just ran across this. Do you think this is what Jerry used to bring down the Berlin Wall? So, just that's extraordinary. Yeah, well. So, here we go. Solomon's Shamir. Quote In the Jamara, the Shamir is a worm or substance that had the power to cut through or disintegrate stone, iron, and diamond. King Solomon is said to have used it in the building of the first temple in Jerusalem in the place of cutting tools for the building of the temple, which promoted peace. It was inappropriate to use tools that could also cause war and bloodshed. Referenced throughout the Talmud and the Midrashim, the Shamir was reputed to have existed in the time of Moses as one of the 10 wonders created on the eve of the first Sabbath, just before YHWH finished creation. What's YHWH? Basically, um, it's God. (laughs) What is YHWH? Um, It is, um, so let me pull from my experience of, my Jewish friends, I think that's Yahweh. And, oh, okay. That's what I had a feeling. All but, right. but you can't really spell out God's name. In, oh, okay. So, so that, and again, I could be wrong, but I could be right. I don't know. We'll see. I'm going to say you're right. I'm going to put money on that. Yeah. But um, all right. Well, that would make sense. But fascinating. Well, this is, the, this is the thing about Jr. He he did not just like tell you what was going to happen fully. He sure. would. He, this is like one of the hints. Yeah. Like, 
why in the hell would he talk about a freaking worm doing bringing down the Berlin Wall that is, you know, it was the symbol of the Cold War. And right. it's like, to me, that was the part that I went, I, I really, yeah, it's like, even, and again, but that was a trip of miracles uh, all over the place. Shoo, was it ever, my God. That's that's such a great story. And then when you were in Glastonbury on a separate trip and you brought your family, this is a, another wild and wacky one, but it's it's so good. It's worth mentioning where your two year old daughter, I believe she had a scratch on her face and Jer went over and said, oh, you did a great job fending him off. My right. question for you and I know you haven't gone into the story yet, but before you explain that, my sort of question at the top of that is, was he referring to the dragon? Was that a dra- the dragon, or was that something else you don't mention? The thing about Jr. <laughs> I'll say again, is he does not explain himself. It's like pieces coming together. Um, because you say in your book, I didn't know what that was until much later. Do you know what that was? I'm assuming I know. And you know the problem with assumption. I know. Assumption. <laughs> you talk about it. <laughs> but but a lot of pieces came together around that. Okay, but the long and short of it is he was describing um, there was there was a car bomb that killed I think a lot of people during that time, and he talked about um, a dragon, an energy of a dragon that was hovering around that area around Ireland and Scotland and uh, disrupting the, the people, I guess we should say. And now the dragon, and we go ahead and, and, and uh, I'll leave it with you. What, what he said the dragon did, which is so, um, such, a, such a powerful story. Well, basically the first, my first hint was um, we were in Glastonbury, which is in England, which is, Oh, I'm sorry. England. Yes, you're right. It was not. Um, well, but that, that's OK. We're we have to cross um, um, cross over into Ireland here. So we were there first. OK. All right. And then that happened. And that was and that that place felt really deeply mystical to me. And what was going on there was kind of like amazing, um, just energetically inside of me. And so after that happened, we got on a boat and we went over to Ireland and we were in Ireland. And um, as we were getting ready to go up to Northern Ireland, um, the day we were supposed to do that, um, there was a car bomb, um, a car bomb that happened um, and it had killed over 20 people, children. It was awful. It was really, Awful. So basically, our trip to Northern Ireland was stopped. It's like we're not going there because this horrible thing happened. Um, uh, it was a radical group. It wasn't the IRA, but it was a, a fringe group of the IRA that did that. And um, at that point in time, we did go to a different church, not Glastonbury, but a church in, in Ireland. And that's where, um, again, our tour guide was trying to tell us about the church and basically everybody in the group had closed their eyes and passed out, including JR. And I kind of like was having a hard time to keep, keep my eyes open. That's when I assume, I believe 
what I'm about to tell you is when it happened. But at dinner later on, Jared started talking about what was going on. And he said um, that there was a dragon that had been roaming in that area. I When he said that area, I don't, when it's JR, it's like England, Ireland, you know, to me, it's like for a while, is that a year, 10 years, centuries? I don't know. But he said, and we went up and captured the dragon. And inside of me, I was so upset over the car bomb and all the children that were killed. I was really upset. Um, inside of me, I said, and you punished him inside of me. Yeah. But instead, Jarrah said, and what we did was he's being taken up to re be re-educated. And I was like, oh, wow, that's not what I expected you to say. Mm -hmm. So, and this is again, one of those things where, you know, okay, that happened. All right, the dragon, that was in 1998. So about it was probably in the 2000s, early 2000s, I started thinking about that story. And then I went, has there been any bombings going off in Ireland since GR captured the dragon? It, these things aren't talked about openly. And it was just like miracle after miracle. So I, I realized, oh my God, there hasn't been since the dragon was captured to be re-educated. Mm -hmm. And so this is not something overtly talked about in our group, but it's like the realization. And even as of now, and what's today, December uh, 2nd, 2021, as far as I know, there's not been any bombings in Ireland since that day in 1998. Certainly not of that magnitude. Not of that magnitude. So, um, which goes to, it's like, okay, that's a miraculous thing. And so because of all these pieces coming together and I, and again, the fog of time and I, sometimes I don't know if I dream things with JR or it actually happened in real person, or if I read them, it all gets blended together. So I'll just preface that. Um, I think somewhere, uh, in some reference, he actually tagged the dragon in Glastonbury. And um, I can't tell you specifically how I know that. So. Would he ever tell you? I think of like uh, a guru that I used to be with. I actually left this guru to be with JR. And I don't talk about that often. But, um, and it was a very emotional, difficult thing for me to do, but I'm glad I did it. And, um, and, uh, but, but when I was with this particular guru, I remember I would, um, I, like he, he married me and my, my husband and he was the first person to arrive. I got married in Napa and during harvest, as you probably are aware, there's a tremendous amount of traffic um, mm -hmm. around the vineyards because it's mm -hmm. harvest and everybody's doing their thing. And so he was uh, in San Francisco and the 
uh, wedding was in the sort of bowels of Napa. Mm -hmm. And the ceremony was at 5.30. Well, it was 4.30. And guess who hadn't left yet from San Francisco? Uh My guru who was doing the blessing, part of the blessing. And I said to one of the devotees, I said, come on, you got to get him in the car. He's like, I can't. He's in an important meeting with his family. I can't. Long and short of it is, he ends up being one of the first people to arrive mm-hmm. at the wedding. Right. And when he gets there, I said, <laughs> Do you bend space and time? And he just kind of nonchalantly said, Yeah, yeah. What do you yeah, what do you want me to say? <laughs> and the driver, the friend of mine, he just looked like he was just completely stoned out of his wits. Right. right. Told me to put this mantra on in the car. And I drove and we're here. And (laughs) I don't even know where I am right now. And I'll, I'll check back in a minute. I have to take a walk. I have to ground myself. I have to do my thing. And uh, so that there were all kinds of things like that, that would happen. Um, I never got to meet JR in the flesh. You spent at least 40 years with him or close to that. Um, in physical world reality. Did he ever explain to you things that he did, even if it was off the cuff or nonchalantly? Did he ever say, well, you know what I did over there? Or did you see that over there? This is what that happened. This is what happened over here, over there, so on and so forth. Um, he would He would not. Um, he, uh, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, these pieces that I'm telling you about um, that we needed to be active, like in sending light to the Berlin wall. That was our charge. Yeah. And one of the reasons why we're going on this trip, he would say that's what he was doing. Uh, he talked about the dragon. Um, I mean, it was, the story that comes up is, I was with him in 1990. We were in Canada on another trip and my wife was pregnant with our first daughter. And I, we passed by, we were in this little town in Canada. We passed by this little Masonic lodge and off the cuff, I said, Oh, JR, Oh, there's a Masonic lodge. You know, my dad used to be a Mason. Could you tell me about the Masons? And he looked at me and went, not now. I went, okay. All right. No, not now. Eight years later, he comes to El Paso and we take him out to dinner and we sit down eight years later. And it was as if I had just finished asking him that question. Mm. And he gave me a, an hour long energetic discussion about the Masons and their line. And I wish to God I had a Mike had a recorder yes. because as he talks, the, the problem that I would have is as he was talking to me, I would go to a different place. And so I was trying to grab on mentally to what he was saying, but energetically I was experiencing something else. So mentally I couldn't grab the information and give it to you. Yeah. Um, but I, that's why I would go on my little detours later and look up things and, connect things and uh, 
what was the Mason's line or lineage? Is it what I'm thinking? Um, what I get and got from that was they care. They they were definitely at some point uh, a deep mystery school, mm -hmm. and um, that was working with the light. That was working with the light, and at some point, um, the energy left that group. I, and I, you know, I apologize to any Masons around here. Oh my God, there might be mystical Masons. I don't know. That's not what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But um, an, an addendum to that story is um, my father had a Masonic ring, a 32nd degree Masonic ring. It was a beautiful ring. And uh, when my father died, I inherited that. And so I asked Jer if he would bless it. And he took the ring in his hand and he almost fell out of his chair. And I was like, um, and I was like, I was like, oh my God, I don't want to hurt him. Oh my God, what, what's happening? Uh, does my father really have a lot of karma? I, all these things are going through my head. And what did he say anything? And, but he did tell me, he said, there were a lot of symbols on the ring, symbology on the ring. There was the double headed eagle. There was all kinds of symbology on that ring. And what he said, and I, I don't really talk a lot about this, but apparently I'm going to talk to you about this and 10,000 of your listeners. So, um, it's time. He, yeah, he said, um, he, he, after he came back, he said, um, what I was doing was I was re, um, th these are my words, not his, because I don't remember his words. I remember the intent. He said, I, I'm re, I'm re-energizing the symbology because those were taken over by the negative forces. And now we are recharging them back to alignment. He didn't say that. This is me talking of what I think he said to me, what I experienced. Yeah. So um, the, the Masonic line, I feel like I have a personal karmic tie to. And... Um, and let's just say being on crusade in the crusades and thinking you're doing God's will. And then after killing all those heretics coming back and realizing that that's not the way to go and having deep karma from that, having to work that through is, uh, you know, we all have our own lights. So we do. And it's, you know, you're you're doing your own completions, Richard. You're you're you are in your action, so yeah. it's getting done. It's getting handled, and that's the good news. Well, I just want to ask your opinion based on your direct experience, and I know there's a lot of opinions out there about who John Roger was, what the mystical traveler consciousness is. People that don't even know who or have never heard of him and are listening and tuning into this podcast might be like, what is this podcast all about John Roger? No, this episode might be, but just there's a lot of opinions out there, of course, based on different experiences, but in your experience to you, who was or is John Roger? <sighs> I know that's a heavy, you know, um, big banging question. Um, well, one thing he, he, um, he was always there to assist me and guide me, 
even though it looked like he wasn't. Um, that was the thing that I needed. Um, the energy that comes with him is hard to talk about, but I can say that it's not that what the biggest thing I learned from him is that every one of us has access to that energetic that is labeled the mystical traveler, but you can label it. Other people may go by a different name. Yeah. It's not exclusive. It is pervasive. And so if you just step back a little bit and talk about being fully aware and connected to uh, what the divine is and how it runs through you, that is um, available to all of us. So it's not exclusive to one man. Mm -hmm. And um, he, he, he did call himself a way shower because it's not like I have this and you can't. Yeah. You have to come to me in order to be whatever saved or I'm the one with the, the supply. It's like the supply runs through you. The, the source runs through you and, and everything he ever did for me was to redirect me to myself. Everything. Yeah. And he was, you know, um, so it, it was like, now I'm seeing uh, miracles happen around me and he's not physically present. He hasn't been here since 2014, but that energy is present. And again, other people can call it different things. Um, so I don't want words to, to separate and divide and go, well, I've got this consciousness and you have that consciousness. It's like, we all go up and connect into the highest. And that's the whole thing that I. Beautifully said, thank you. Did he ever tell you who you were uh, in a previous incarnation? Did you know him in a previous incarnation? Are you picking up loose ends and finishing up the job here? He told me he wouldn't tell me. He said, I'm not going to tell you who you were because you'll get a really big head. <laughs> he never told you? No. No. Did he ever um, drop clues, little crumbs? Um, um, he called me. I, I felt like it was a friend of his. So I feel like in another life we were friends, but who knows if we were pirates or. Cut <laughs> his head off in a battle. Yes, we have no idea. Hey, you know. Our. <laughs> um, I, I have an idea, but I don't know. Uh, you know, and it, you know, and it's like um, he would always say, "It doesn't really matter what the past life is. It's what are you doing now." So. And he would also say, it's like, well, you, you think you were somebody really great in a past life, but you're back here on the planet working out your karma. So you must not have been that good. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so you know, it, it was, uh, it's good to be humble uh, because I really, I realize how much I don't know the more I go into this and the mysteries are vast. To you, who is the mystical traveler? Um, 
Or what is the mystical traveler? Perhaps is more appropriate a question. Um, it's it's the one, anyone who, uh, and again, anyone can carry this consciousness, um, who is striving to be fully aware of God. Um, so there has, from what I understand, there has always been a conscious, a, a being, a person holding that consciousness on this planet, anchoring it. Um, some are known, some are not. Some can be in their you know, some can be working in a drugstore behind a counter and, and hold the consciousness on the planet. Some choose to go out and, and teach or do other things. But, um, but that's, um, it, has, it has a very, um, it's very loving. My experience of that consciousness is very loving, but it is also very, um, in order for you, it, there's a discipline to it in terms of um, holding the discipline to hold yourself to the good and keep coming back to the good. Not that you have to do it all the time. It's very forgiving. Um, but if you find yourself off path, forgive yourself and come back. And um, that's always go for the good. And that can be hard here on this planet because this planet is made up a lot of things. We look out there and see a lot of the negative, challenging things. But to come back to the good always, yeah, yeah, is um, challenge. the The planet can be seductive. The negativity can be seductive. So good can sometimes look as if it's weak, but mm. it's not. Mm -hmm. Well, if you had to pick one key that JR has brought forth within your knowing, your consciousness, that's really transformed your life, that's transformed your consciousness, what is that key? Um, to always come back to uh, the gratitude and loving and for, forgive. So... No matter what we've done in our lives, um, to be able to forgive ourselves is is a really, and sometimes that can be really hard. And I realize how hard that can be. Uh, it's not an easy thing just to say, oh, just forgive yourself. That can be something that is a lifelong process and a very deep process. When I truly, and I'm still working on forgiveness for many things I've done in my life, um, but to um, go back to um, loving it all and seeing that there is a purpose in everything that I've done in my life, even though it seems challenging or negative, it was always there to align me back to aware, my own awareness of the divine that flows through me, mm. no matter how challenging it was or hard it was. And there's some pretty hard things out there. So a lot of people may not be ready to hear that. Mm -hmm. But if you take the view off of just this worldly plane and you go up into the other realms and 
you realize that this is just uh, a piece, a blink of the of an eye, and you, you um, even the mo most horrific things here are seen as small things, but they keep directing us back to the clarity and understanding of why we're here. And even though it's like, oh, that didn't work, I'm not gonna do that one again, um, to this one does work. And I like aligning with that. I don't know if I'm making sense. You are making sense. And it leads me to, uh, organically, to my next question that's really, and, and you may have answered a bit of this already, but if you were to die today and you float up into the ethers of these other spheres, dimensions, soul, whatever we want to call it, and you're with the divine, you're with God, you're with the traveler, you're with JR, you're with, you know, the party. What do you think they or God would say was your greatest completion? First off, I, I would suggest that you can actually do what you said without dying. I'm with you on that. So, um, so I can do that every day. Mm -hmm. It's like every night I go to bed and say, what is my greatest completion mm -hmm. so far and maybe today? Um, and then in terms of maybe why you returned here to complete whatever those things were that needed tying up and completions. What do you think that would be? <clears throat> oh my God, it's starting to open up something else. I'm sorry. Um, um, so let, let's just pretend that this, this earth is actually an amazing place. It's not a place of you're going here to do penance because you did some terrible things and you need to complete them. I, I, um, I certainly didn't mean it that way. No, no, I know. I know. This is for other people listening. I know it's not for you. Yeah. So um, this place, you have all of these different, let's say that there's an, let's pretend like there's another element. There's another realm yeah. where all you need to do is think of something and it appears in front of you. You can create whatever you want automatically. But here, it's like, I'm so used to creating what I want and happening automatically, but here I don't, it's not working. What in the world do you have to really look? So there's different dimensions here that come together emotionally, mentally, unconscious, etherically, that are all brought together here that maybe this is a very unique place and it can be a really good uh, lift off into the higher realms. Mm -hmm. So I view this place as an opportunity for each soul that comes here, no matter what their life looks like. Um, so um, I, I think the the greatest thing that I, I would say now is is I would I would get up one more time than I fell. I've had many opportunities to quit on many different things and say no, that's enough, and give up on my life. Mm. Um, a lot of them, um, but I didn't. 
even though that seemed like it would be the thing to do. Uh, so um, that is one of my keys. It's like to keep going. Mm. And if you don't, if I didn't keep going, I wouldn't be able to see the arc of the storylines, since you're a storyteller, the arc of the storyline of my kids. It's like if I would have stopped and given up and said, well, I don't have anything in my hip pocket, but I do have a $2 million life insurance policy that I can give my kids here. If I had chosen that one, instead of standing up and seeing the arc of the good that actually happened if I stuck around, um, that was a big thing because it takes time sometimes for you to see the good that was lining up, even though the challenges seem to be huge. Mm. So the name of my next book, the arc of the good. Thank you for that, Richard Powell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here just to give you information so you can have a great book. Yeah. Is, it, is that, is that what it is? It, it, it might be now. Yeah, it is now. <laughs> I mean, it might be my doctoral, you know, PT thesis practicum, whatever you want to call it. Well, it, it is a radical opinion that everything is guiding you back to the good. Everything. And people may can argue that and with good, probably with good evidence. But um, I'd say everything is guiding me. You may have to do it a few lifetimes to see the full arc. So. Yeah, it's like underneath all that layer cake of karma and stuff, the love is the essence, right? Essence and form, your book. What is the essence? The essence is the good. The essence is the loving. The essence is the purity. The essence is the light. The essence is the nothingness that is the everything that is. So, you know, in my doctoral program, uh, which you completed and I'm finishing up, my Currently, it's been really seeing and tracking myself, seeing the holiness in everything and everyone in myself, seeing myself through the eyes of holiness, seeing everyone through the eyes of holiness, seeing those people that I really disagree with, their actions on the planet, and seeing them through the eyes of holiness. And even that brings me back to that arc of the good loving that sits so I mean, you're on it that's it mm. yeah Look, uh, yeah that, that's it that's um jerry used to sit, use uh, say light if you spelled it out l-i-g-h-t is living in god's holy thoughts Oof, and crazy. so i mean the awareness of that it's all of this is all an awareness training Mm -hmm. uh, we'd go on these trips and I'd start, you know, wandering around someplace and he'd say, do you know where you're going? And I say, no, he said, we'll get back here with people that know where we're going. He goes, this is an awareness training. He would always say, this is an awareness training. Yeah. Only I went, oh my God, this really is an awareness training every day, all the time. It's like when I interviewed Jesu Garcia and he talks about his experiences with JR and he talks and he shares a story about him as he was his driver, as you know, driving him somewhere one day. And JR said, 
you know, pay attention. You're, you know, you're not, you're not driving. You got to know where you're going on the road. And of course there were many metaphors in his sharing with him. And uh, he said, I am driving. He said, you're not driving, you're steering. <laughs> yes. Know where you're going, stay on the best you road that you can because that's where you want to be. Yeah. And it's all an opportunity. Richard Powell, you're a gem. Thank you for this time, this opening of, of just such a, 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 a treasure trove of stories and teachings and wisdom and heart. Thank you. Thank you, Diane. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> hey, guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.